Let me open us in prayer. Lord in heaven, thank you for our time together, and we pray for your blessing on our time. Father, I pray that we would um, understand through how you've worked in history and providence um, what it is to be a church that is committed to constantly uh, being reformed by the scriptures, uh, putting off all of our, our human, natural, fleshly tendencies and seeking that every aspect of church life would be conformed to your word. Father, we pray for your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we worked through history. We went through about really about 1,700 years of history in about 40 minutes. Uh, it's a lot of stuff. I tend to think that one of the best ways to teach theology is through history uh, because it gives you your bearings of, if I were to say, okay, here's... Uh, the hypostatic union, the humanity and divinity of Christ, that's one thing. But if you see how it played out in the 300s at the Council of Nicaea, it begins to make a lot more sense. And, and it, it often opens up pieces in your mind where you go, oh, I see why that's a big deal now. So something that may not seem like a big deal at all, when you see how the church has had to deal with it and what happened when sort of the church went astray through the years, it often causes light bulbs to go on in your mind. And so actually, Lord willing, my plan is in 2024, to, for my Sunday school class for almost the whole year to just be an overview of how God has worked in church history uh, to show his providence, to refine his church. And I, I can't wait to do that. It really is one of my biggest areas of interest as a pastor. Uh, so we talked about the Reformation last week, how we got to the Protestant Reformation. Today we're going to talk about what it means to be reformed. And I want to start with the scriptures. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, you can look at Numbers 32. Uh, this has been one of the tragedies of God's people throughout history. It's what I think you see in Numbers 32 is what we could call stopping short. Stopping short of God's commandments. Stopping short of full obedience to the word of God. God had delivered the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. It was a tremendous deliverance. I don't know if you realize this, but the Egyptian exodus is really the Old Testament paradigm for New Testament salvation. Be, if you ever want to do a really fun study, you could do it this afternoon on how is Jesus the greater Moses? How does he deliver the people? How does he deliver us from sin and bondage the way that Moses delivered the people from uh, Egyptian slavery? Fascinating study. But God has delivered the people from Egypt. He's promised to bring them into a special land, uh, a land where he would dwell with them. And the design was that all tri 12 tribes would live in close proximity to one another, that they could share the tabernacle together, uh, that they could protect each other, that they could be insulated from pagan influence together. And so there was to be a oneness to the tribes entering in and they were to settle together. So as they enter, and if you were to read the book of Joshua, you would see this, there was an allotment of land in the promised land or, uh, for each tribe known as Canaan. God's plan was to inhabit the western side of the Jordan area together. But a couple of tribes actually look at the east side and they said, you know, that side looks really good. That side's really fertile. It looks like a place that we could be safe. It looks like a place where our, our cattle or our, our, our livestock could graze. So look at Numbers 32 verse 1. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jezer and the land of Gilead. And behold, the place was a place for livestock. In other words, God has said, I want you to go all the way into the land. 
but they've stopped just short and they say, you know, it's kind of nice out here. We really like it. And, and, and give us a little bit of personal space. That might be nice, you know. We want our livestock to graze out here. So look at verse 5. They said, if we've found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. God has given them both, the, both this tremendous blessing in promising them the land and it's a commandment. This is what they were supposed to do. But they stopped short of full obedience. The, the allure of the fertile land was intoxicating to them. So they separate themselves from the other tribes. They lived with the Jordan River as the dividing line between them and their kin. And they believed that their plan to settle on the eastern side of the Jordan, stopping short of crossing over, was better than God's plan of crossing into the land. Well, were there consequences of their disobedience, of their stopping short? There always are. There are always consequences of disobedience. Having remained on the east side of the Jordan, away from the vast majority of the other tribes, away from the tabernacle, they were vulnerable to attack. They were vulnerable to false worship. And what happens? Another king, Tiglath-Pileser, uh, in 740 BC, the king of the great Assyrian Empire, comes and he invades, and they're easy prey. God's people have a tragic history of stopping short of the kind of obedience God has commanded. We see that on the pages of Scripture, and we see it in the pages of history. So last week, we traced the thread really from 30 AD or so, the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, all the way into the time of the Reformation. So if we were to kind of summarize the time of the Reformation, it was really just a rediscovery of the authority of Scripture. Prior to the Reformation, the church, which, by the way, is as critical as we can be of the church prior to the Reformation, we're really reading our family history. Do any of you have embarrassing episodes in your family history where you could say, ah, I wish that wasn't part of who I am? But it's how God has formed us and made us through time. Well, prior to the Protestant Reformation, there were three sources of authority in the church. What were they? Scripture. Scripture's good. Scripture alone is good. The problem was we had Scripture and tradition and magisterium. So you have these three sources of authority in the church. And they called it a three-legged stool. All of them, you know, should balance out and make it even. Well, of course, Scripture got the short end of the stick. And the Pope generally had, and the bishops and the other hierarchy generally had the most authority in the church. So oftentimes things were being done that if you had been reading your Bible, you would have said, where did this come from? Purgatory, indulgences, where is this stuff coming from? Are you kidding me? Well, the one way you keep people from doing that is to what? Keep them from reading their Bibles. And so the average person did not have access to a Bible. They, they didn't know it. They didn't go to church on Sundays to hear it preached. They, they heard whatever the, the priest wanted to do. And usually they just watched the sacraments for a large portion. It was in Latin. Many of them didn't understand what was going on. So the people were largely ignorant of Scripture. So the Protestant Reformation, really, before it could be a reformation of soteriology, what does soteriology mean? how we're saved. Before it could be a, a reformation of how we're saved, it really had to be a reformation of who has the authority in the church. In other words, how can we know how we're saved? Is it according to what the Pope says? Is it according to what scripture tells us? 
Well, 1517, Luther posts the 95 Theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg. It starts the, the, the Reformation, um, massive, really just a fire spreads. Um, and it, 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 uh, it's over really the issue of authority. 1521, as I told you last week, Luther was tried at the Deet of Worms, um, and he was found guilty because he would not, he could not recant. And so he says that famous line, here I stand, I can do no other. Great line. It's a line that we ought to say as well. He's being taken off. He gets abducted by some uh, friends of his, basically, or, or the, the, the messengers of some friends of his. They take him into a castle. What did he do? Do you remember? translated the scriptures into German, right? What's his goal? His goal is, I need the scriptures in the hands of the people. That's how Reformation really starts. The Reformation was a return to opening your Bibles. That's why I love, I mean, I don't, please don't ever take this for granted. I love getting able, being able to say, please take out your copy of God's word, because for really the better part of 1500 years prior to the printing press, that was not an option. You were hostage to whatever the preacher or priest was saying at the time. So it is tremendous that you and I are able to actually take out our Bibles and open them and see the word of God itself. So Luther, a year later, he completes, that's amazing, he translated the whole New Testament uh, from Latin to German, or from Greek to German, uh, in one year. Um, Worked almost round the clock. He's doing that, but also in England, you've got a guy named William Tyndall. Do y'all know the name William Tyndall? Amazing guy. One of the lesser known reformers, but just as significant, I think, in terms of influence on us today. Tyndall was an Englishman. He wanted to get the scriptures in the hands of the people as well. He made a vow that the average plowboy in England would know more scripture than the Pope. And he committed himself not just to translating the Bible and getting better translations. So, for example, fixing a major problem in the Latin Vulgate. What was the major problem that we talked about last week? There was one word that was translated wrong that led everything astray. What was it? Repent or do penance, right? So Jerome had translated it, do penance. And so the idea is, how do we get saved? Well, we do works of penance. It's not what Jerome really meant to do, but over time, that's how it shaped the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, there were many other influences, but that bad translation uh, was a big part of it. So Tyndall translates the New Testament into English. He uses the word repent rather than do penance. He translated, he had to have them printed outside of England because it was illicit to have the scriptures in English in England at the time. So he was having them printed outside of England and um, smuggled in, he smuggled thousands of Bibles into England. It's amazing. You just look at prior to the Reformation, the church relied upon the people not knowing the word. Post-Reformation, we rely on the people knowing the word. We believe the health of the church is in the pews as the people know the word of God. Um, I think it's fascinating, though, You think Roman Catholicism sought to keep the Bible out of people's hands, but so does liberalism today in America. Not by saying you can't have a copy of God's word, but by looking at it and saying, you believe the Bible? Things have changed. Are you kidding me? That was a 2,000 year old book. It's archaic. It's out of date. It's the exact same intent. Both of them are born of Satan's desire that the people not know the word of God. By the time William Tyndall was executed in 1536, he had smuggled, they believe, more than 16,000 Bibles 
into England. Uh, excuse me, 1536. He didn't live for 140 years. Um, that's how he was so effective. He lived so long. Uh, I mentioned last week, 1534, Henry VIII declares the act of supremacy, making him the head of the church. That means England starts to become Protestant, but you still have a problem. Henry doesn't see the scriptures as the primary authority. He sees himself as the primary authority. That's going to affect England for the next hundred years. It's a question of how much do we need to reform things? So, for example, if you've ever been to an Anglican church today, you know that Anglican worship is sort of a hybrid. It's largely got Protestant soteriology, Protestant theology of salvation, but the worship's going to look very much like a Roman Catholic service. Have y'all experienced that before? See, the reason was, they, they said, how far do we need to take this idea of reform? Well, we definitely need to take the reform to, to the question of salvation. But do we have to reshape and reform church government? Do we have to reshape and reform worship? Do we have to reshape and reform Christian living? All of those things came into question uh, with the question of Reformation. John Calvin writes a book in the 15, I think 1530s, called The Necessity of Reforming the Church. Have any of you ever read it before? It could have been written today. Tremendous book. But he says, the church must be reformed from the ground up. We can't take the existing exoskeleton of Roman Catholicism and just tweak things here or there. It must be reformed. Now, when do things need to be reformed? Yeah, when they've been deformed, right? So the church had become deformed. Now, there has to be a standard to say that. Well, according to Scripture, the church really in the 1500s was unrecognizable. So Calvin writes this tremendous work um, called The Necessity of Reforming the Church, and he's just saying all of church life needs to be brought into conformity with the scriptures. Everything from church government to the way we worship to the way we read scripture, all of it needs to be brought into conformity. We've got to get rid of these old sources of authority on all this old baggage and reform the church, not according to tradition, but according to the word of God. Now, that's not an overnight process. And what would happen over in England over the next hundred years, England and Scotland, really, over the next hundred years would there, is that there would be a tremendous back and forth between sort of Protestantism and sort of Catholicism. And what did it always have to do with? Who was in power at the time? Who's on the throne at the time? Henry VIII died. He was succeeded by Edward VI. Edward was an evangelical. He, he was uh, solid. So he begins reforming the church. So for the first time, clergy can marry. Um, images were removed from the church. Uh, you know, much because people were not literate in the Roman Catholic Church, much of their theology was shaped by images. It, it was communicated by images. Uh, so images were removed. The prayer book uh, insisted or ensured that the service would be in the vernacular. People could actually understand the service. Uh, people now received the bread and wine in communion rather than just the priest. Uh, so he begins reforming the church. The problem is he was only king for six years. He dies. Bloody Mary comes and she restores Roman Catholicism to England. She was the, one of Henry's daughters, Henry's daughter with Catherine of Aragon. Uh, she hated Protestantism because it had hindered her from getting to the throne quicker. We really ought to be very careful about mixing politics and religion.
Our, our religion, our Christianity ought to shape our politics, but we must, you know, you think about tr- separation of church and state in America, it was to protect the church from undue influence of the state. That's why we have this in our makeup, not to protect the state from the church, but to protect the church from this kind of stuff. Um, she began removing all the evangelicals, burning them at the stake. Um, she would at times burn as many as 300 Protestants at once. So let me just ask you, who, on, who this morning had to look over their shoulder to any degree wondering, is this going to be the day that they're going to catch, arrest me, and kill me because I'm going to worship Jesus? We live in a very blessed time, sometimes such a blessing that it can lead to comfort and even complacency. Uh, but that's not been the history for the church. In fact, we've talked about this before. The church is always at its best when the society is at its worst. When things are at their worst, Christians tend to be at their best. Well, Elizabeth I succeeds Mary. Here's where she, she's really critical. And if you're wondering why all of this matters, it gives us context as what we call a reformed church. But Elizabeth I comes in and she succeeds Mary and she says, you know, I want, I want Protestant soteriology. I want this justification by grace alone through faith alone. This is good stuff. However, I'm not willing to go quite as far as actually reforming the church. So she came up with what was called the via media. See if you can tell me what it means reading that. What's that mean? What's that? Not quite. Way is right, media, middle, the middle way. So she sort of created a hybrid, something, bless you, somewhat Protestant, somewhat Catholic. In other words, she did the exact same thing that the tribes of Reuben and Gad did. They stopped short. Again, like I said, it's always been one of the tragic faults of God's people to not enter into full obedience. So over the next hundred years, Rome is, I mean, England is constantly asking the question, how much of church life do we need to bring into conformity with the scriptures? Well, I'm not going to get too deeply into some of the things that happen next, but uh, Elizabeth dies. She's succeeded by James VI of Scotland. He became James I of England. Any of you use a King James Bible? He was the one that commissioned that to be translated. The 1611 King James Bible was, uh, <laughs> was, became very well known. Now, by all counts, he should have been a good king, one who would love the Protestants because that was his background, but really he was very antagonistic to reform. He saw both extremes of Roman Catholicism and Protestantism as a threat to the throne. And so he really wanted to keep this middle way thing going. He put in place a man named uh, William Laud, Archbishop of Canterbury. This is really, it's a terrible story. It's one of the greatest stories in church history at the same time. You remember the whole God draws crooked uh, straight lines with crooked sticks thing? It just keeps popping up throughout all of church history. So William Laud becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury. In other words, under the king, he's really the high leader of the church. He was not uh, a solid believer by any stretch. 
he was what we'd call Arminian. We're going to come to that in, in a few weeks, but he was very legalistic and he also was very heavy handed. And so he forced all the churches to start using the prayer book in worship. Is that a big deal or not? Some of you have probably been to churches that use prayer books where you stand up and you open to whatever the next prayer is and all that stuff. Is it a big deal, you think, that the church had, was being compelled in England and Scotland to use the prayer book? Well, how do we answer that? We answer that by saying, does Scripture call for it? And if Scripture doesn't call for it, then we ought to be very cautious about it. And so for William Laud to say, pastors, this is how you have to lead your churches is by the prayer book, and you need to follow this lectionary and all those things, it led to rebellion. In fact, it led to one of the most fascinating stories in all of church history, in my opinion. Um, do y'all know the name Ginny Geddes? Ginny Geddes uh, was at, uh, what was it, St. Giles Cathedral, I think. Uh, we've been there before, beautiful church. But it was the day that Laud had required that the prayer book be used in worship. Ginny Geddes, uh, in those days, I know y'all can't believe this, but they didn't have pews in church. I know you, everybody thinks that, that Jesus preached to people sitting in pews on the Sermon on the Mount and things like that. You didn't have pews in church. You brought your stool from home. Uh, so it might have been the stool that you milked the cow in. It might have been the stool that you sat at the table in. But, it, you know, furniture wasn't as easily accessible as it is today. He forces the prayer book upon the church there at St. Giles in Edinburgh and Ginny Getty stands up and she takes her stool and she throws it at the preacher and pronounces a curse upon him. Was she out of line? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know her heart. But I know that to force things upon people that are not explicitly found in the scriptures is a dangerous thing. And so she actually, in throwing her stool at the preacher, led to a tremendous reform and a lot of pushback. Let's fast forward a little bit. You actually are getting to civil war in England. Uh, and the war is really over Catholicism versus Protestantism. Do we side with James? Do we side with uh, Parliament? Parliament sided with Protestantism. James dies. Charles I um, comes into power. England's in civil war. Here's why this matters to us. Parliament says if we win, if we win this war, we need to be prepared to have a doctrinal statement for the new Church of England that reinforces biblical principles. So in 1643, Westminster Assembly was convened. Hundred, more than a hundred of the best exegetes. What's an exegete? Just a studier of scripture. Somebody who studies the scriptures uh, for life. Uh, they usually studied them in the original languages. These were students of the word and wonderful theologians. They were convened in 1643 at Westminster Assembly. What they would produce would become the Westminster Confession of Faith. So if you've been around here long, you know that that is the doctrinal statement of our church today. I'm going to talk about the relationship between a doctrinal statement and scripture in a minute. So if you're wondering, are, are doctrinal statements kind of on par with scripture? Doesn't that sound a lot like the, what, what Rome was already doing, creating traditions that were on par with scripture? It's not, and I'll explain that in a few minutes. But everybody has a doctrinal statement. You have a doctrinal statement. Atheists have a doctrinal statement. Everybody has a set of views that they adhere to. 
In the Westminster Assembly, they were putting together 33 of the core doctrines of the faith. Now, 33 sounds like a lot, right? How do you come up with 30? You have thousands of core doctrines in your life that you believe about God, about sin, about every aspect of life, and you can talk to any atheist, and you will know within 10 minutes what a lot of their core doctrines, or we could call them core assumptions, are. So the Westminster Assembly meets for seven years. They met over a thousand times. They would debate with their Bibles open, here's what we believe about such and such. And they would at times debate for hours and hours and hours every day in the original languages. Uh, what they produced became the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms, as well as the Directory of Worship. It was to be the doctrinal statement of the Church of England, which would include the Church of Scotland at the time. Uh, the problem was uh, the parliament, parliament didn't hold the throne long at all, and eventually Protestantism was overthrown. The Church of England went in that via media direction. But for our sakes, it's helpful for us to understand the background of the Westminster Standards. We want you to know everything we believe on the front end, and so you're able to pick up a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you can see what we believe about eschatology. What's eschatology? Uh, in times, good. What we believe about the sacraments, what we believe about uh, predestination, all that stuff. Some of them, some of the, the aspects of, of it are essential things to our faith. In other words, there are certain things in there that if you deviate from this, for example, chapter one is all about the authority of scripture. If you reject that, you're really outside of the Christian faith. Um, other things are very much secondary or even what we call tertiary, third level things. So some of them are essentials, some of them are not, but it gives you an opportunity to know who we are, what we believe. We follow in what we call the reformed tradition. It came from an effort to bring all of life into reform according to scripture. Why do we take it seriously? And some of you try, I think this has probably been something you've tried to understand. You look and on the one hand you say, First Scots is really a church that takes scripture very seriously. But also you talk a lot about the Westminster Standards. What's the relationship there? The Westminster Standards are what we call a subordinate standard. What does subordinate mean? Underneath in order, underneath in authority. So what we're saying when we say we're a confessional church that holds to the Westminster Standards, we're saying we think the Westminster Confession and larger and shorter catechisms are accurate understandings of what the Bible teaches. We think they, they reflect the teaching of Scripture. It's not something that, that is supposed to be contrary to or above Scripture. It's underneath Scripture. It's saying this is how we understand it. Um, how many people in this room grew up Presbyterian? Okay, very few. I did not. I didn't have a clue what Presbyterian was until I was 18 years old. Um, I did not become Presbyterian because that's all I had ever known. I became Presbyterian because I studied the scriptures and I realized, you know, what the Presbyterians believe about church government, about theology, about sacraments, about how to live the Christian life. I think that is the best reflection of what the Bible teaches. Now, if at some point I was convinced that actually, you know, there's other, there's other traditions that have gotten it better, then I would likely go in that direction. I wouldn't try to steer for Scots away. That would cause church division. But the, if I could be persuaded by Scripture, 
that there were other understandings that were more accurate, then I would follow my conscience rather than uh, just saying, no, I'm Presbyterian, died in the wool. Because I'm not. I want to be faithful to the truth. That ought to be your desire as well, to be faithful to the truth. For some of you, you're going to have to figure out, okay, I'm not sure I'm totally on the same page with them on baptism, right? Or on um, uh, end time stuff. That's okay. I would not, I personally would not call those essentials. In other words, I think they're really good, faithful Christians that are going to disagree on those issues. Can you still join this church if you disagree on things like that? Absolutely. Um, The leadership of the church is in conformity, is in agreement about those things, but there are many in our own congregation who agree on the essentials but disagree on the secondary and tertiary level. So you may read through things um, in the Westminster Standards and say, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Talk to me, talk to Steve, any of the elders. Ask, hey, how should I understand this? And then it's up to you to determine, can my con- is my conscience okay in a church that teaches something different than that? I would urge you that if it's a secondary or tertiary issue, then I think your conscience very much ought to be okay as long as this church is preaching the word. Some of you are trying to figure out that, that question of, is this where the Lord's calling me? Do I line up on every single jot and tittle? The answer is probably not. You know, everybody to some degree, if we were to talk through it enough, would have slight differences. Um, so a couple of questions I'd want to ask you guys as you're praying through this is, first, is this a church that seems to love Jesus Christ? And is that evidence through a high view of how he speaks to us in his word? Second, is this a church where you're being fed and growing? And third, is this a church that uh, is loving you well? If, if the answers to those things are yes, even if you're not sure about all the secondary and tertiary things, I think those are a great way to know if this is where the Lord's calling you. Well, I said first, one reason we, we take the Westminster Standard seriously is it's a subordinate standard. We all have subordinate standards in our mind and heart. We take it seriously because we believe it lines up with Scripture. The other thing was, this is just something sort of neat. You think about how many solid conservative Reformed churches there have been through the last 400 years or so, thousands and thousands. How many elders in those solid conservative Reformed churches have there been? Hundreds of thousands. Every one of them, if the church has done its duty, has studied, every one of those has studied the Westminster Standards and said, I think this is an accurate representation of Scripture. That's super encouraging to me because, you know, I know the Holy Spirit works in my heart, but I also know he works in other people's hearts as well. And I want to take advantage. I want to to benefit from what he's doing in other people's hearts. And so it's super encouraging to me that through the ages, hundreds of thousands of God-fearing folks have read through these things and said, I do believe these accurately represent the scriptures. Um. The result is what we call a Reformed church. I don't actually use the word Presbyterian that much. Presbyterian actually has to do with how it's ruled, how it's led. It's led by elders is what it means. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. I don't use the word Calvinistic. Uh, Some people will use that word a lot. I don't have any real affinity for that word. I think it lines up with what John Calvin taught, but we're not Calvinists per se because we want to follow Calvin. We are what I would call a reformed church, and that's the language Pastor Walton and I use most to describe us. We want to bring all of life 
into conformity with the scriptures. That's how we're going to spend the rest of this class. Next week, we're going to look at Reformed theology. What does it mean? What do Reformed people believe? And really, the better question is, what does Scripture teach? And we have a common ground in what we believe Scripture teaches about the essentials of the faith. So we're going to talk about that next week. The following week, we're going to talk about Reformed worship. Why do we worship the way we do? You know, I'm going to guess, unless you have worshipped in a church that met in a school, this is probably one of the plainest buildings you've ever been in. Why is that? Why aren't there pictures all over the place and things like that? That's very intentional. That's part of, of, of who we are as a Reformed church and how we worship, and we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about Reformed church government. So what are elders and deacons, and why don't we have popes and bishops? And Is Alex a priest? That's one of the most common questions I get. Like, do I call you priest or father? Please don't call me those things. <laughs> um, you, know, you are more than welcome to call me Alex. And if you have kids, they're welcome to call me Pastor Alex. It, it doesn't matter. Um, my position is not an elevated position. Uh, we believe in, in a reformed view of church government, according to Scripture, a reformed view of the Christian life. In the last uh, two classes, Lord willing, we're going to focus on just how do I live the Christian life? How do I use my gifts? Carol talked a lot about how many people volunteer in this church. I love that. It, it's good for our community. Of course, it, it saves money. I, don't forget I was raised Jewish, so I'm always in favor of saving money. But, but I love the community that it helps build. But this is not actually where I want people spending most of their time. You know, I, I really, I was talking to Carol the other day. She's in a book club. And she was talking about kind of the way she had opportunities to stand for the truth in a book club. That's what the Christian life ought to look like. It, being in your neighborhoods, being in your workplaces, your, your families, your homes. Of course, it's different. We have stay-at-home moms in the church. You don't need a job description. It is well laid out for you by your children. Uh, you know what you're called to do is to train your children up in the nurture and admonition of Christ. Uh, different people in different seasons. But my desire really is not that you come to the church and say, hey, where do I sign up? What committee should I be on? That kind of thing. We have committees. That's great. Our strong desire is that you serve wherever God has situated you in life. You're to be a fisher of men. So go into your workplaces, go into your families and speak the truth of the gospel. What we want to do is equip you with all the tools you need so that when somebody challenges you or uh, pushes back on you, you are confident to give good biblical answers. For that reason, we want to encourage you to take advantage of all the opportunities that we give as a church to equip you. If this goes back to our first lesson, the first week, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, give you the tools you need to be like the early disciples who, they didn't come to the church and say, hey, where do I serve? They went out into the world, and we are told that they flipped the world upside down. The Holy Spirit is just as active today as he was 2,000 years ago. That capacity exists today just as much as it did 2,000 years ago when Christians are committed to serving the Lord Jesus in the world in which God has called them. And so we're going to look at what is a reformed view of the Christian life. That's where we're going over the next five weeks. Uh, thank you guys for taking part in the class. Feel free to ask questions, give me feedback. Um, anything that I've said, anything that we've said in worship, anything, all of that's fair game for you to just say, hey, help me understand this more. Sometimes it's, it may have just been something that I totally stumbled on my words on and it didn't come across clearly. Sometimes it might be something that really is different than what you're used to. And so feel free to reach out and we can hash through these things because we believe church membership is a huge decision and we want you to be right where the Lord has called you. Let's pray together.
Lord, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for the gift that they are, the tremendous encouragement that they are to me as a pastor to see uh, so many folks, especially so many young families, that simply desire to be under the ministry of the word. They desire to grow. They desire to be fed. They desire to be used and useful to you. And so I pray for your blessing upon them as they seek wisdom in the weeks ahead. Uh, thank you again for this gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.